I am Citizen 44. This show is being sponsored by Phoenix, Oregon, the movie. We're all living in a simulation. Some alien race out there using our misery for entertainment. How's the comic book going? It's languishing unfinished. You don't have time because you're working your ass off at Kyle's Terrible Restaurant. 359, Bob. Cutting it close. You should be grateful that you have a job. Grateful. Maybe I'll join you. <laughs> I feel like I'm 14 again. Drawing comics and needing a ride home. Close your eyes for a minute. I want you to visualize what you'll be doing 10 years from now. Are you serious? I think you've lost your mind. No, you're not visualizing it, Bobby. Come on, close your eyes. Don't close my eyes anymore. I feel like an idiot. You could roll. I remember. It's completely useless talent. Rising Phoenix. Come for the pizzas. Oh, my God. Stay for the bowling. Your aliens made you do that strike. It's my destiny, Bobby. I know it is. Imagine being an owner, drawing your comics whenever you want. Oh, man. Serious? That's what I'm talking about. Bobby? My partner, Carlos, makes this delicious dough with his hands. Yes. I got 300 scores before, but nobody ever put my pictures in the papers. You should enter our grand opening tournament. You haven't even seen me roll, Huffy. You haven't seen the action on my ball. Mario put his money in too. He has a right to ask questions. I'm his proxy. I've been helping you. For months. He's been helping Mario. You are a paranoid little child. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what to say, Theo. Leaving a lot of money on the table. Nice going. You're going down. Not your fault. Well. It's not my fault, then it's Tanya's. If it's not Tanya's fault, then it's the aliens. You need to take care of yourself, Bobby. I am fine. I am a grown woman. These could be the best years of your life. Do you realize that? Visualize. This is what I live for, Hoffy. Frame 10. These two geniuses are opening up a pizza parlor slash bowling alley. It's classy. Phoenix, Oregon. Hey, Mom. How are you, honey? Good, thanks. How are you, Mother? Fine. You had a nice drive with your daughter. I had an excellent drive with Zoe yesterday. Super fun. What school was that? That was OSU, Oregon State University. Oh, she hasn't made a decision yet? Well, I think that was the solidifier. She had already gone with her mom to check out the uh -huh. campus. This was more of a casual, let's take dad. And I'd never been there before. And uh, oh. what a great place. Fun, cool, hip. How far a drive? It's about an hour south of Portland. So about three hours-ish. Not bad. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Super cute place. It was supposed to be cloudy, but it ended up torrential downpours. There's a lot of art on the walls, cool murals, kind of reminds me a little bit of Chiang Mai, Thailand. Uh-huh. We had such a good time that I think that's going to be where she wants to go to school. Excellent. So she's decided to become a beaver, not a duck. <laughs> Cute. She's a beaver. She's a beaver. Anyhow, I made my reservations to come in on Friday and go home on Saturday. Okay, super. Way to get her done, Mom. What are you guys doing today? I'm not feeling up to par. What's the matter with your par? Well, it was a lot of work for making Passover. It was great. It was beautiful. It was lovely. A woman knocked on the door, a neighbor from the third floor. She asked if we were having Seder, and she asked, could she be here just for the service? And I said, sure. And she participated, so it was really nice. Well, that's what it's all about, isn't it? Yep. And who else was there? Dad and me, Rachel and Aaron, Esther from upstairs, Judy from across the way, Javid from up on the third floor, Gino, and Aunt Tony and Cousin Alex. Nice. But preparation for Passover is not like any other of the holidays because it's so specific, you know. 
like even the night before, it's not a big deal. But, oh yeah, I have to put out water. Well, I cook the water with salt. Not a big deal, but I'm just saying there are so many things that need to be done for Passover. Maybe I'm just tired from it, you know. Hey mom, remember, you're 80 now. Yeah. So you're doing pretty good and you're entitled to be tired and uh, good job, all those things. What's dad doing? He's sitting next to me. Hello. Hello. How you doing, Mark? Super, Dad. How are you doing? All right. What's happening? I'm up at the office on Jesus Came Back to Life Day, working on the show. Oh, very good. And you're on it. Right now? Hey everybody, Mark Ahrensberg here. Welcome to Citizen 44. This is show number 66. My guest today is musician, amazing guy, local guy, Ashland guy, Dirk Price. Known Dirk a long time. One of these smiley faces in the crowd. Very warm, just a nice guy. Dirk is the lead guitarist and lends vocals to the local band, The Rogue Suspects. He's got a couple of good stories. So we got Dirk here. We also have my kooky buddy, Sega, Sega Alexander. And then of course you just heard my mom and dad, haven't spoken to them for a little bit. And uh, who else we got? Oh yeah, Gary, Gary Lundgren. We got Gary, yeah, Giddy. I accidentally called him Giddy one day and I explained that Giddy Lee, the lead singer for Rush, the story is his real name is Gary, but his mother I think is from the Czech Republic, used to yell out the window, Giddy, Giddy, come in for dinner. So he changed his name to Getty, Getty Lee, but his name is Gary. I think he's like a Jewish guy from Canada. Anyway, we got a good show. We got Gary Lundgren talking about his movie that's coming out, Phoenix, Oregon. I caught it, it's great. Excited for you all to see it. Okay, here we go. Appreciate you coming. Thanks. Good to be here. You are the guitarist for a popular local band, The Rogue Suspects. How many shows a year do you guys do? Oh, probably about 80. We're starting to do a lot more as a trio because that's what the venues will support. Who's the trio? Always me and Greg. And nowadays it's Jennifer Davis. Shay is the original lead singer, has been for nine years. She's working at the cabaret right now in Beehive. So for two months, we don't have her. And then she will be at the cabaret again this summer in Mamma Mia. So again, we won't have her for two more months. We've been working with Jennifer in the Criterion shows. 
and she's fantastic and we just made her part of the band so it's shay and jennifer both and then greg you're talking about greg frederick greg frederick on bass yeah super cool guy i've known him a long time greg is the reason the rogue suspects exist because he holds everything together he does all the booking he deals with all the stuff that i would not deal with how long you guys been doing this greg and i have been playing together for i think 21 years quite a long time both of you've been doing that from here we started in Grants Pass. I was living in Grants Pass and got a call from Tom Stamper. Stamper had a gig in Grants Pass. He called me to play. Jim Calhoun was the bass player at the time. And uh, Jim called Greg the sub once and we just kept playing. And then we started playing here in Ashland at Standing Stone. It was great. We had an awesome crowd every Monday night. And it was just me and Tom and Greg initially. And then Dave Swan started playing with us. So we had a killer four-piece band, sax player for Oregon. Paul McCandless came in one night and watched us the whole evening. And we talked to him and he says, uh, I've got my horn, but it's in the shop. He said, I want to come play with you next week. So I said, yeah, absolutely. He came in, put two saxes in his mouth, improvises in harmony. Unbelievable. Some of the best sax playing you've ever heard. I'd only seen one other guy do it. I think his name was Jerry Peterson. And I think he played for Bonnie Raitt. And I saw him do that in L.A. And I was playing with Brett Levick at the time, who also lives here. Brett Levick and I have been making music since 1986. Where did you meet Brett? In L.A. at uh, Grove School of Music. We were both students there. When it was in L.A., when it was a physical school, the Grove School was really the best professional music school that ever existed. And that's Dick Grove. Yeah, Dick Grove. When it closed, Dick reformatted everything for home study. And when he passed, his heirs called me and asked me to take over managing the School Without Walls, was what it was called at that time. And uh, eventually I bought it. The legacy is incredible. I mean, Dick was, I think, the greatest contemporary music educator of the 20th century. He started at NBC. He was one of the writers. When the orchestra was playing live, if you were watching NBC, it was music that was written the night before by Dick Grove and some other writers. And they just wrote all night. They had to be able to have a score pad and write for all the instruments, arrange for whatever the producers were asking for for that spot on television. And the copyists, who were creating the individual parts for the orchestra, after they finished eight bars, they would take that away and the writers would have to keep writing. So they didn't have any time. If the producer says, I need 30 seconds of a 16-piece big band playing salsa, that's what they wrote. And then there were these things called specials, and everybody had one. Carol Burnett, it'd be like a two-hour variety show. And Dick wrote all the music for all of those because he could just do that. He could just sit down with a pencil and create music on a score pad. And that's what he taught us to do. When did you get turned on to him? I had been playing in Alaska and we drove all the way from Fairbanks, Alaska to Los Angeles. How old were you at the time? I was in my early 30s and uh, I saw the school then. And I went to the school on the day when they were having what they called the uh, composing and arranging final playdowns. They actually had professional musicians come in and play your compositions. And they did that every week or two for a year when you were in the composing program. So the final composition that you wrote was an original composition and you got a 32 piece orchestra to come in and play your composition. And I saw this 18 year old kid standing on the podium conducting this awesome piece of music being played by professional orchestra. I just wanted to be able to do what that kid was doing. That was just astonishing to me. And sure enough, when I first heard an orchestra play a piece of my original music that had only existed inside my ears, and all of a sudden I'm hearing this orchestra play it back to me as I'm conducting it, I, I felt like I could levitate off the stage. It was just an unbelievable feeling. But my process is pulling my hair out for every decision, and you can't be that way and survive as a professional composer and arranger. You have to be able to make the decisions and go with it, and I just couldn't do that. I spent as much as 100 hours on three minutes of music. In a half an hour, Dick Grove could sit down and give you a three-minute arrangement for a 16-piece big band, transposed, 
he could write it and it would be close to flawless. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you start? I started in the middle of West Texas desert, little tiny town with about zero culture. And uh, I escaped at the age of 18 and, and went to North Texas State to study music. Did you go to high school? Yeah. I left home in, I think, my senior year and, and worked in the oil fields and lived in a rat hotel, but I, I finished high school. What were your parents doing back in the day? Dad was an optometrist and mom was a school teacher. She was very popular. She was a really good teacher. She taught high school English. How'd you do in high school English? I did pretty well. What high school was that? Fort Stockton High School. Is that where you live? Fort Stockton? Yeah. Okay. I went to North Texas State and I wanted to study music, but I never had a lesson. So I didn't know anything about music. And the kids that were at North Texas State were some of the best musicians in the entire world. And I'm not talking some of the best music students. I'm talking some of the best musicians that have ever lived. The guy that was the keyboardist for the One O'Clock Lab Band, which was the premier lab band at North Texas State, was Lyle Mays, who was Pat Metheny's keyboardist later on. And they won a Grammy for the North Texas State School album that year. And it was the first time that a university had ever won a Grammy. What year was that? That was 1972. And then did you get into the program at the time? No, I went to the classical guitar class and uh, I just was stunned. I couldn't even comprehend the level of musical ability that people were held to, to go through that program. And uh, I have to do something else. I can't be a musician, can't compete with this. And I went off and I was a cowboy for five years. What does that mean you were a cowboy for five years? First, I went to work on a ranch outside of my hometown, which was uh, 200 square miles. And I was literally a ranch hand cowboy. We worked cattle, but we dug post holes, and carried rocks. I mean, it was just really, really hard manual labor. 12 hours a day, seven days a week. We got a couple of days off a month. And um, everybody I was working with were Mexican nationals. So even back then, there were very few Americans that would work that hard. I didn't stay at that ranch long. I worked at a bunch of other ranches and I wound up working some very small ranches that my family owned in Central Texas. And we had a really, really horrible winter where I actually had cattle dying from the cold and the ice that I couldn't do anything about because it's this black clay mud that you can't drive a vehicle in when it's wet. All my vehicles were disabled, all my tractors, everything had a flat or was stuck in the mud. They had a contest in Waco, which was not far from where I lived, for playing guitar continuously. It was a Guinness record kind of thing. And I entered that and I won. I set a world record. I played for seven and a half days. What'd you play for seven and a half days? Just strumming the guitar mostly, but you know, I played everything I knew many, many times. And as long as you were strumming the guitar, even if it was just open strings. And where'd you do that? That was at a place called Holtzi Music Company in Waco, Texas. And they were giving away a Les Paul recording, which if I still had it would be worth about ten or fifteen thousand dollars, and an amplifier. And I won the guitar and the amplifier, and I got a letter from Guinness saying you're the official world record holder. And then a few months later, somebody played for eight and a half days. So I didn't wind up in the book, but I have the letter I was looking for today. When did you pick up the guitar? I started in high school, but there were no teachers. So, so. did you just teach yourself? Yeah, I was playing by ear and uh, I wasn't good. What were you listening to for inspiration? I was listening to Jimi Hendrix and Led Zeppelin, but I just didn't know how to really learn. I didn't know that you could slow records down and pick the needle up and drop it like a lot of people were doing when they were learning because nobody showed me. And your parents weren't musical at all? No. Dad did try to get me a guitar teacher and he took me to what was going to be my first lesson and the guitar teacher was sitting on the front porch with a broken arm. He had an accident at the oil rig where he worked. <laughs> so that was the end of my guitar lessons. <laughs> wow. 
So the Dick Grove scene was your first reintroduction into having some kind of formalized musical education? No, actually, I went to a school in San Antonio, Texas called the Southwest Guitar Conservatory. There was a fantastic guitar player named Jackie King, who was possibly the best jazz bebop guitarist that ever lived. Also, Willie Nelson's guitar player, they actually cut a couple albums together. And Willie Nelson said Jackie was his favorite musician. So he had a little school, and I studied there for a year. And I think I was about 25. When I set the world's record, I beat almost 30 other people. And I went, okay, if I can do this, maybe I can be a musician. And if I'm going to work my ass off and not make any money anyway, which is what I was doing as a cowboy, I might as well do it as a musician. And then I got to go to that school, and that took me a long way. And I played professionally for several years after that. When I came to the Grove School, I had already been playing professionally six nights a week for a number of years. That was started in Texas, and then we went on tour in the Northwest. We played a lot in Oregon, and we wound up in Alaska. Who were you playing with? I had my own band. It was called The Smile. I was the lead guitar player. We had an incredible lead singer that still makes his living singing and playing solo in L.A., and he makes a really good living, which is really amazing. We cut an album, and we toured, and we went all over the country. After I left the Grove School, I had some daughters up in Oregon from my days when I toured up here, so I wanted to get back on the road, and uh, I joined a band that was based out of talent. We toured all over the place. We played Central America, Honduras, Puerto Rico, Panama, we played Alaska again. We played in Korea, Greenland. We were just all over the map, even Haiti. I got my appendix cut out in a tent in Haiti. We flew into Haiti and I had an appendicitis attack that night. We were gonna play for the Marines there. We were put up in these plywood boxes or barracks with cots. I went through the night in agony and pain and I went to the medic tent in the morning and they said your appendix has got to get cut out so i had a free operation wow did you play beforehand or did you have to do that gig afterwards i had to do the gig afterwards i couldn't sing so we got a marine to stand in for me and sing some of the songs did you play guitar i played guitar i had to sit down it was it was it was painful oh my goodness (laughs) and this is not the smile band this is another band this is another band this was called detour and uh None of the musicians are still around that were in that band, but they were all from here. You said something about your daughters? Yeah, I had a couple of daughters that were living in Oregon, and I, I wanted to be back up here so I could be closer to them. How old are those young ladies now? One's 33 and one's 28. Are they in this area? They're in Reading. I have a granddaughter. How old's your granddaughter? She's two. Wow, very exciting. Yeah. How did you end up in talent? I first came up here in uh, the early 80s with my band from Texas. And then I hooked up with that talent band in 94. And I played with them through 95. And when they wanted to go back to Korea, I said, no. And I told them before, when we were in Korea, I said, I'm not coming back. What didn't you like about Korea? They put us in these vans with all of our equipment. And there was no protection all of our equipment was stacked up right behind us, and their drivers were terrible. Freeways are chaotic. They're huge, 15-lane freeways sometimes where everybody is just crossing whenever they feel like it. And the drivers of those buses were not good drivers. And the water, oh my God, very, very dark orange coming out of the faucet. It's not a very good way to live. Yeah. I did like playing for the troops. At the time, we had over 50 bases there, and we played all of them. It was an experience. It was very cool. We played the DMZ. They gave us a tour of the DMZ. It's insane. What kind of music were you guys playing? We were playing rock and pop and R&B and dance music. Was it all covers? No, actually, we started playing some of my originals. Do you ever play any of your originals with the suspects? Yeah, we do a few. And we try to really arrange our music so that it's not just a cover. How'd you like the food in Korea? I adapted to it. There was a thing kind of like a hibachi where they would bring out all these spices and let you cook your own meat. Korean barbecue. Yeah, and it was good. So you're done with that. You're not going back. Then what do you do? 
they allowed me to trade places with the guitar player from Grants Pass. So he wanted to go out on the road with the band I was with, and I wanted to settle down. And the band he was in, his name is Perry, I think he's back here now, he had a band called In Flight, which was around for at least 20 years. Dal Carver, I think, played in it. A lot of local players played in it. Dal's an amazing musician. I got a funny story about him. We were playing this bar that had trombones hanging overhead, and our keyboardist at the time was Dean Eingermeyer, and he was a trombonist, and we knew it. And one night, he grabbed the trombone off of the ceiling over the stage and just started playing it. Played a great solo. We were all astonished that the trombone was playable and that he could play that well. One night, we're playing the same place, and Dal was subbing for Dean, and I mentioned to Dal that Dean had done that. So Dal steps up in the middle of a piano solo, grabs the trombone off the ceiling, and plays an incredible solo. Dal is an amazing trombone player. Wow, I never would have known that. <laughs> Dal, of course, owns the Goose. Yeah. And that's the first place I actually played music professionally with Robbie and the Stamps. Through that experience, I got to see Dell play a few times. That guy's got some sick skills, man. Yeah, and doing a great thing for the musical community here, Dell and Renee. I really applaud them. They're great. I've seen some great musicians there. Oh, yeah. I've done some duos there with Greg and had a good time. And people come and sit in. Don Harris comes in, Matthew Krimmelman and Frankie Hernandez. I've written a lot of music with Frankie, too. He grew up in Austin, so we're fellow Texans. And I lived in Austin off and on for a few years. That was a great experience, too. When I was there, Stevie Ray Vaughan didn't have a recording contract. Eric Johnson didn't have a recording contract. You just walk in and hear those guys play for free. The Thunderbirds. This was in the late 70s and early 80s. How long did you live in Austin? I left there in 82. I think I went down there in 77. Is right when I quit ranching. That's the first place I went. I literally played on the streets for spare change because... That's about how much respect I had for myself as a musician. And uh, I was willing to do that. You know, I was willing to pay my dues to just be able to play. It was hungry, and I got by, and I got some chops. You're doing what you want to do, right? Yeah, I was playing on the street, and I got a gig with the band that was playing six nights a week, making reasonable money. And I just stayed with that kind of thing for several years until I went to the Grove School. I stayed at the Grove School for eight years, trying to absorb everything I could. I wanted to be a teacher working in several functions there, and I was there 80 hours a week for years. I think I learned more teaching than trying to study on my own. Originally, when the school started, there were some people there studying at the beginning, like Steve Lukather from Toto and some other session players, I think maybe uh, Jeff Picaro. And they literally got hired right out of the school because the recording industry and the television industry and the film industry needed music. And they knew that these kids were being taught what they needed to know to do music in the real world. So they would come to the Grove School all the way through its existence. They would get calls and they'd say, so who's your best composing and arranging student right now? Who's your best drum student? and they would start getting calls for recording sessions and for writing. One of the guys in my composing and arranging class, and that's just a one-year class, before we even graduated, he was writing for five different television shows, and he still is. His name was Bill Fulton. There was another guy that had been there right before I got there named Ron Jones, and he writes a lot of the music for Family Guy. So you've got almost 20 years in with the suspects. Yeah, we've just had a blast, man. We've had so many great experiences. That every Monday night jam at the Standing Stone, we wound up forming a different band out of that, and that band kept evolving. I think maybe our first really big, exciting gig was at the Brit opening for James Brown. And that happened to be my first date with my wife, Jane. When was that? It'll be 16 years ago this summer. This was summer solstice, June 21st, and we got to open for James Brown. And when we finished our set, James Brown comes out and he does this thing in a show where he pays tribute to musicians that have passed. And while he was talking about all these people, he said, I don't know where that opening act came from, but man, they were the real thing. That's the godfather telling us we're all right. 
That was fantastic. And later, after his set was done, he was walking by, and I said, Mr. Brown, it was an incredible honor to get to open for you. And he shook my hand, and he said, God bless you. You can play. Then he's walking out to the bus, and my wife, or my date, our first date, she's sitting on a rock out there, and he walks right past her, and he sees her, and I guess he thought she was part of the Brit crew, and he shook her hand, and he said, God bless you. What a sweet guy. Yeah. And he was in a really good mood. One of his guitarists told me that the show right before that, that he'd done the splits. At 70-something, he was something. doing the splits? Yeah. Man, some people can't get off the toilet at 70 years old. <laughs> wow. That's brilliant. Yeah. Again, we were playing at the Brit two or three years ago, and uh, Steve Miller was on the main stage. And this black gentleman came and sat down right in front of me while we were playing. And uh, I could tell that he could listen, that you know, he could really hear. And as I was loading out, he walked by me, and he said, Man, it's good to see an older guy up there really putting his heart and soul into it. I said, thank you very much. You know, and he introduced himself as Joseph Wooten. And I went, are you any relation to Victor Wooten? And he says, yeah, he's my baby brother. I'm Steve Miller's keyboardist. Made a new friend there. He's a great guy. We're Facebook friends, and I see his posts all the time. Very, very thoughtful, heartfelt stuff about uniting this country. And he's a wise man, as is Victor. Victor's an awesome guy, too. Victor came here and made a music video with Peace Troubadour. James Twyman produced it. I got to be in that with Jeff Pivar and, and a whole bunch of other Ashland locals. Really nice video. Wrote and sang and played. It's called I Saw God Yesterday. You can look it up on YouTube. Cool. All took place right down there on the plaza. Check that out. It's amazing what happens here. Several years ago, there's a guy named Herman Adele. I don't know if he still lives here, but... He owned George Martin Productions with George Martin and Quincy Jones Productions with Quincy Jones. And he had a charity for brain research. And he brought George Martin, Ed Asner, Hal Linden, and a couple other celebrities to Ashland over at the uh, Ashland Hotel and had a party and a fundraiser. And we got to meet George Martin. I've got a picture of me and Greg standing shoulder to shoulder with George Martin. Ridiculous. Brilliant. Yeah. Shay told me the story of how she came to be with you guys. Yeah, I hear the story told different ways, but the way I remember it is somebody pointed her out to me at the co-op. She was working the cash register, and they said, that girl over there can really sing. We were used to having people sit in with us because that's kind of the way we started. We were kind of a jam band that was hosting people sitting in at the Standing Stone. So I invited her to come sing with us, but she wasn't 21 yet. So on her, I think it was her 21st birthday, she came into Alex's and I saw her and I said, do you want to come sing with us? And she said, sure. So I brought her up and she just blew the room away. And I think there was a couple of venue owners there and both of them came up and told Greg, hey, if you put her in the band, we'll pay you more. <laughs> she can really sing, man. And she's an awesome lady. Yeah, she is. Everybody in the Rogue Suspects are super people. I love them all, and I'm very grateful. We've had a little smoke business the past few summers. How's that affect the amount of gigs you're able to get during the summer? It affected us. We played some concerts in Bad Smoke. They shut down the green shows early. And I think we had a green show scheduled, and it was one of the ones that got cut. Well, I'm hoping, based on all the real winter we've had this year, that we get a break. It's been catastrophic. A lot of people are moving out of the community. Yeah, you got to take care of your lungs. And there's a lot of people that already have lung issues, and they just can't live somewhere where there's going to be that much smoke. Yeah. When's the last time you were at the Brit? We were at the Brit last summer. We were on the garden stage. The acts on the main stage were... The Cow Sills, The Turtles, lead singer for Three Dog Night, original founder Chuck Negrone, who's also Brett Levick's father-in-law. Wow. Yeah. I don't really know him that well, but I know how steeped he is in the scene here with Jeff Pivar and everybody. Yeah. Incredible talent. When we had our band together in L.A. in 86, he was in his early 20s, I think, and he had so many great tunes that it was really, really hard to pick. 10 or 12 tunes for a set because when you play in LA you do one set where'd you guys play in LA 
One of our main gigs was a place called At My Place in Santa Monica. It was a great venue, perfect acoustics. They had a beautiful PA system flown over the stage and a great sound man. Bands like Bonnie Raitt's band would play there. We opened for some name acts and our band was amazing. What was the name of that band? It was called Cobalt Blue. All the musicians were just superb and Brett's writing was incredible. He wouldn't like this, but it sounded like kind of Steely Dan of the 90s. It was a real sophisticated cross between David Bowie and Tom Petty mixed in with Steely Dan type chord voicings and, and rhythms, you know, complex rhythms and things. Did you guys record it all? Yeah, there's a five song demo that's really well recorded. What are you doing these days? Playing is my main thing. I teach a little bit. My students are talented and I expect great things from them. One of them, Carson Berry, came out with a little album a few months ago. It was beautiful. I loved it. And my son, Talon, James' son, he does music. He started in high school as soon as he was done with sports. He played his last basketball game and immediately started using my recording studio and just cranking out tons of tunes and doing his own videos. He does all his own video editing. And he's got tons of stuff on YouTube. Talon Heater is his channel, and it's T-A-L-E-N. This is the day and age when you can self-produce, you can do the whole thing yourself. Yeah. It's all at your fingertips. Yeah, it's a wonderful thing. And it's a two-edged sword for people that really hone their craft, like people that went to the Grove School that were making a real good living composing music. All of a sudden, a lot of kids are able to make music in their bedrooms and they're giving it away. Sometimes it's good and sometimes it's not. I was in the third grade when the Beatles were on the Ed Sullivan show and 73 million people watched that show and it changed my life. And it changed a lot of people's lives. I just read Steve Lukather's autobiography and he said that was it. And he's a couple of years younger than me, so he was in the first grade. And he saw that performance and that was it for him. He was never gonna be anything else but a musician and a guitar player. In 1969, the record industry had really hit its peak of money making. And they just figured it out just a few years before because of the Beatles that, oh, you can actually sell a lot of records and make a lot of money. So they just started signing everybody. And that allowed for some brilliant people to be exposed to the world, like Frank Zappa. Nobody liked that is going to get major exposure now because it's too cerebral. But fortunately, we were around to see that and hear that and experience that. And Frank Zappa was my hero growing up. And he might have saved my life because he did some public service messages, anti-drug messages, specifically against meth. And I heard it. I listened to it. That was in 69. It was pretty new. Scientists thought that if you ran meth, like some people do, that it would kill you instantly. They were astonished to find out that people were actually putting it in their bloodstreams. I knew a couple of people that had done it quite a bit and had cleaned up and had normal lives, and they went back out and did it one time, and they were insane. It's a very, very bad thing. Yeah. So you've been married a long time to Jane Treehouse Books? Yeah, we still own Treehouse Books. She does all the work, and she's down there today with the First Friday thing. She does a craft for the kids every First Friday. And today is the first. It's yeah. March 1st and yeah. First Friday, kind of a special First Friday. Yeah, so she's magical, and uh, she's the best person I've ever known. I'm the luckiest man in the world. How old are you now? I'll be 65 this summer. 65? Yeah. What? <laughs> still with the good long hair and the beard and rocking out on stage. I've seen you play a bunch. You're still killing it. Thank you. Yeah, it's awesome. It's great to get to do this. I'm very grateful. I think most of the world never discovers what they can do. Yeah. And that's the saddest thing in the world. It is. I grew up in a rough area. It was middle of the oil field. People were oil field workers and we wailed on each other on the playgrounds and we were mean and that was their existence from then on. I fortunately got out of that. 
All the bands I've played in have been with great people and were like family. So I really appreciate those experiences. How'd your mom and dad do? They did great. My dad is still going strong. He's 90. He's a pilot and he flies his plane all the time. He's 90? He's up there in a plane? Yeah. He flew up here by himself in his plane last summer and got to meet my daughters and my granddaughter. He flew here from where? He flew here from Texas. Wow, that's a long flight. Yeah. Dang. Flight. Yeah. He's a healthy dude. Yeah. Your mom's no longer mom's with? No longer with. But she went strong for a long time. She was a brilliant woman. How long were they married? 63 years. Good on them. Yeah. I got a little story about my parents' 50th. They went to this music festival in Texas every year. It was a private invitation-only music festival that was just fantastic. Out in the Los Santiago Peak, which is the world's largest fossil reef in West Texas, right on the edge of Texas and New Mexico. And they didn't know it, but my brother and sister and I all plotted to be there without letting them know. And we showed up just after dark at the festival, and my brother and I walked into the festival together. Dad's standing there talking to some people, and they just finished asking him where his kids are. And he says, well, Dirk is up in Oregon, and Brett's out in Nashville. And, and we walked up and said, no, we're not. <laughs> that was so much fun. And then we had planned a little party for him at the festival, and everybody loved him. On the way in, I saw this tent with a mountain bike outside of it. And you don't see anything like that in West Texas. And I said, that looks like something somebody from Ashland would do. And come to find out that guy was a guy named Ronnie Glover, and he was a musician who was living in Ashland, and he had come to that festival. And I met him there. I'd never met him before. Ridiculous. <laughs> Is your brother older or younger? He's younger. What's he doing? He's helping take care of my dad. He stayed with my mom and dad out there. Dad lives on a creek. It's a West Texas oasis. It's actually a really beautiful place. He's still completely able to take care of himself, but when my mom was living, she needed a lot of help, and my brother's there. So he stayed there. He lives right next door. My brother's a songwriter, keyboard player. We toured with my rock band in the 80s. And what was that band? That was The Smile with Alan Baker. The drummer and bass player, they were all from Texas. I heard Tom Petty sing, I did it for me, I would have done it for free, because it was the only thing that felt true and, and I thought that's it it's the only thing that I could ever feel like I could put my heart into well I'm glad you're doing it glad you're still doing it glad you came in to chat about it and it's cool that we live in the same community and I appreciate you coming out Dirk thank you Mark yeah brother thank you man
Hey Gary. Mark, hello. The movie's called Phoenix, Oregon. Yeah, we had a great premiere. Very satisfying after working on this movie for about two years. So to premiere it at the Ashton Independent Film Festival in front of 500 people, it was, it was very, very satisfying. The movie's called Phoenix, Oregon. And it was filmed in Phoenix, Oregon? Yes, it was filmed a little in Phoenix, a little in Ashland, and a lot in Klamath Falls. Klamath Falls is where the bowling alley... And Scam's Bowling Alley, the best place to bowl in Klamath Falls. They have state-of-the-art scoring, wonderful ownership. Barry came out for the premiere, and we're going to see him again here on May 2nd in Klamath Falls at Pelican Cinema, thanks to Coming Attractions Theaters. Sweet. First in Klamath Falls, then at the Varsity in Ashland, and that screening is May 17th at the Varsity Theater, and we will be here in Ashland for a Q&A. We would love to get Jesse Borrego here again, but it looks like he's going to be in Portland, which also on that same week, May 13th through 17th in Portland, they're doing kind of a series. The film office there, Oregon Made, features they're sponsoring four screenings at four of the best theaters in Portland for four straight nights. I was there at the Armory on the 13th, Saturday night, and I have to say, I was blown away, dude. You hit one out of the It's a super fun, sweet movie with great actors, great performances, great writing, great music, great, 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 great. Appreciate that, Mark. It means a lot. We had a great response at the screening, and until it plays, you just don't know. So hearing the laughter and seeing the tears and hearing a lot of the comments has just been really special for all of us who made the film. You got kick-ass actors. While he was here for the screening, you managed to wrangle Jesse Borrego up here to talk to me on the show. What a great guy, champion of the movie. Patrick Neri did a killer job, beautifully shot, fun to look at. Just hearing John Askew's score and the music we licensed and David Raines, his incredible mix with Patrick's cinematography. It was just, like I said, very satisfying. Tons of gratitude that the team came together to raise the money for Phoenix, Oregon. Well, I've heard nothing but great things about it and uh, I'm super happy for you and your family and the crew and everyone involved with it. And I look forward to seeing it a second time. Excellent. Thanks, Gary. Look forward to it. Okay. All right. See ya. Thanks, Mark. 
We're having a good time. Are we? Are we having a good time? Yeah. Tell me when that starts, because I'm ready. I'm ready for that to happen now. Do it right now. Sega Alexander. That's not your real name, though. It is not my slave name, but it's my human name. The Sega part? The Sega part, yeah. We talked about that once. What's with the chain, Mr. T? I just wore this up to High Lake and had a whole family weekend at a cabin, and I, I rocked this chain, and my little sister, my newest little sister, she's 10, wouldn't shut up about this chain. Shut up! She wanted to wear it the whole time. Oh, yeah. I had to fight her off. Let me see the girthiness of it. It's a comfort fit with a heavy look. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Oh. I'm going to put it on my nipples a little bit. Hey, that feels pretty good. I found it in a box of stuff while I was cleaning. I was about to toss it because I'm thinking, I'm never going to wear this. And that moment, I decided, fuck that. I'm wearing it all week. Now this is two weeks. Do you wear it to bed? I take it off to bed. Do you take it off when you're taking a shower? I, uh, yeah. I mean, I bet it's waterproof. You think so? It's cool. This could be part of my brand. By the way, uh, thank your sister Holly. Is that her name? Yeah. Holly Begali. Holly Begali, yeah. Got some free ice cream over there at uh, Zoe's the other day. They know what they're doing. They do. I've gone twice since for that walnut brownie dairy-free ice cream. I can't tell the difference. Yeah. Ben and Jerry's is hooking me up too, you know. What are they packing? They're packing a non-dairy, all kinds of peanut butter and chocolatey goodness. Vegan? It's all vegan. Yeah, they're making the Cherries Garcia vegan. They're making all this stuff. They know what's coming. It's freaking brilliant. It's the best time in the world for someone to decide, you know what, I've eaten enough animals over 50 years. I'm going to go with the whole plant thing. I'm eating like a king because I live with a vegan chef. So what are you doing with yourself? You living with your grandmother now again? Living with Claire George Costanza. Yeah. What's going on over there? Yeah, this awesome huge house and talent. My uncle and I are uh, shacked up upstairs on the top floor. Uh-oh. We call my side the West Wing. It's a big house. Uh, I believe it was born. It was born? <laughs> what are you telling you about the list? It was created in uh-huh. 1942. Grandma, correct me if I'm wrong. What's her name? Sandra Nelson. Sandra Nelson? Yeah. Awesome house. We're kind of fixing it up right now, getting ready for summer. Right around the corner. TikTok, motherfuckers. Other cool projects worth talking about. I'm fasting. What day are you on? I'm on day two. What are you giving up? Food. Doing a water fast. Okay. How long are you going to do it? I'm thinking till tomorrow. Tomorrow will be 72 hours. Okay. Just a little quickie. <laughs> Good for the soul. Good for the body. We're all fat pigs anyway. We all could use a break, I think. About our relationship, but how we knew each other. I was like, you know what, Grandma? I'm going to be honest. For a while there, I was working at three hotels and a bar. And there was a few days where I just didn't sleep. And my one friend was Mark. He would drive me to my jobs. And then I'd go to Grant and stay there till 3. Right. And then I was at bars at 7 a.m. That sounds pretty stupid. And I would do that for a few days. Yeah, that's a good loop. What the fuck? What the hell? Drove me crazy. Yeah. Once I started drinking, it was unsustainable. I lost my mind. It was unhealthy. Yeah. It was not you at your best. But now you have contrast. You can see you at love it. that. Yeah. And you can know whether or not yeah. that's really good for you yeah. or not. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that I was a guy that got you home. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Gave me a hundred bucks once. Yeah. That cashed you out for about a week's worth of rides to Medford. Yeah. You were an excellent customer. (laughs) Sometimes I was a little concerned about you when I dropped you off and you were lying in the middle of the street, but I knew that you would find your way. I blocked the street once because I saw cars coming and I could see that you would have been a chalk outline in about an hour. (laughs) Oh. Glad you survived all that. You're not kidding. I had a glass of white wine and was called a girl the other night. I don't drink really anymore. I have no interest. I'm a pot guy. Your grandma growing pot? Grandma's not. I love receiving marijuana. You know Millie Vanilli? No. Remember the lip syncing uh, scandal? No. Those two really good looking black gentlemen? No. They had to give their Grammy back? No. Yeah. That's coming up. So what are you doing tonight? What's going on after this? Ooh, you know what? I'm going to go on a nice, easy run. Yeah, where are you running to, Forrest Gump? Around talent. When's the last time you owned a car? Uh, that was, uh, I owned a truck a couple years ago. Okay. Before I wrecked it. How'd you wreck it? Drove into a ditch. Wreck it, Ralph. Were you drunk? Uh, I was pretty hammered, yeah. yeah. Yeah? Did you get busted for it? No. Out in the country in dirt roads. You're so lucky. Yeah. Did you get hurt? I did not get hurt. Not a okay. scratch on me. So your life's pretty chill right now. Very chill. I'm very humbled and blessed. Thanks for coming on the show, man. Absolutely. It's always a pleasure. Let's do it again in a month or so. Okay, see ya. Okay.
The following song is called Our Heroes by Talon Heater. When the glowing sun parts and the cold night spreads, the blowing breeze glides and all seems dead. Our heroes fight together for different reasons. They put fear aside to bring us love and freedom. Beaming light through the air, dodging flaming explosions. Their minds stay calm amidst all the commotion. Our heroes must fight. show i hope you enjoyed it It it's great to chat it up with dirk he's such a nice guy and uh, he certainly had some interesting experiences i mean come on man guinness book of world records i don't know anybody who could say anything about that so thanks dirk and speaking of his son and jane's son talon heater that was his song called our heroes check out talon heater on youtube very talented young man i want to thank my mother and father, happy Passover to you guys and all the other Jewish people out there, all your brothers and sisters. want to thank Sega Alexander. You'll hear Sega in upcoming shows. He'll check in and uh, add his little bit of uh, whatever he does. I want to thank Gary for sponsoring the show and keeping us posted on his movie, Phoenix, Oregon. Fantastic movie. Hope you get a chance to check it out. And hopefully this will get a, a national release so anybody anywhere in the United States of America can check it out. That's uh, Phoenix, Oregon, the movie. Check it out on Facebook, Joma Films, J-O-M-A Films.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Really appreciate it. It's a lot of fun to do this. Citizen 44 with Mark Ehrensberg is a listener-supported presentation. Please visit me online at Ehrensberg.com. That's A-R-I-N-S-B-E-R-G.com. All shows, all the time. You can download the shows at CastBox. C-A-S-T-B-O-X, iTunes, and Stitcher. Please go to CastBox and subscribe to Citizen 44 with Mark Ehrensberg. Your subscription matters to me. And for donations and things of that nature, since this is a listener-supported presentation, uh, you can go to ehrensberg.com and click on the Donate button. Okay, another one done, son. Show 66. Coming up, we got a bunch of fun stuff. I'm not going to tell you who, but it's coming. That's all I'm saying. All right, till next time. 
Find out more about Dirk and the Rogue Suspects and what that band is doing and where they're doing it. Visit them online at roguesuspects.com and on Facebook. Thank you, Sam, Zoe, and Val. If whatever you're doing is not working, there's only one way you can change that, and that's to change what you do, 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 change what you do. I am Citizen 44. Yep.